0: Budge stand as we come and as we uh, go to the sermon text this morning, uh, which comes to us uh, from the twelfth chapter of the book of Hebrews. We read uh, verses twenty-five uh, through twenty-nine uh, this morning. Again, uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter twelve, beginning at verse twenty-five. Let us hear the word that God has given to His people. Again, from Hebrews chapter twelve. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to these words that you have given to us on this day, God, we ask uh, through the blessings of your Holy Spirit that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Many, many uh, moons ago there was a, uh, a man in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by the name of Marcion. Now, uh, Marcion uh, was a good man. Uh, By all accounts, uh, he was godly in character. Uh, He paid his tithe every week. Uh, He was well liked uh, by those outside the church. Uh, But there was one small problem. You see, Marcion taught that uh, the Old Testament God and the scriptures of the Old Testament were not for the Christian church. That one of the things that Jesus Christ had done was to do away with that age. In fact, Marcion did away with even some parts of the New Testament. He did not believe in this God who was a consuming fire. He taught that God was a God of love. God of grace, a God of mercy. You're not like that mean Old Testament father who had brought destruction upon those who disagreed with him, uh, those who transgressed the law. Well, of course, Marcion, even though he lived about 1,500 years ago, uh, that idea that We serve a God of love, not a God of fire, not a God of thunder, not a God of judgment. Is an idea that is with us today. In fact, if you went around and asked even your average evangelical, they would think something likewise. You know, they would have issues with this, uh, these things we read about in the Old Testament where God brings the, the, this this judgment uh, for sin upon the people. You know, it's so much different than the Jesus that we see in the New Testament. You know, a, a Jesus who forgives. A Jesus who is full of grace and love. Of course, one of the, the problems with that, of course, is not only is it completely antithetical to what the Bible teaches... But of course, it's completely against what Jesus himself says. In fact, if you go and you read your Gospels, there is no person in the history of the world who talks more about hell, more about judgment, more about sin, than the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's one of the issues that one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, had with the Bible. Some of you may know that Jefferson uh, cut up his New Testament and took out all the references to the bad stuff. In fact, if you go to Monticello, you can see his personal Bible uh, that he called the sayings of Jesus. And like with most people who don't believe in God, uh, he only kept the stuff that he liked. only kept the stuff he agreed with. The stuff that fit with how he wanted to live his life. Again, Jefferson is not unique in the history of man. Many people live like that. They may not physically cut their Bibles up, but they only pay attention to those parts of the Bible that fit with how they think the world should be. So Again, while Marcion lived so long ago, and and Jefferson was was around so many years ago, these ideas are still with us today. In fact, those ideas were in uh, the church to which Paul is writing in the book of Hebrews. And that's what the focus of this passage is this morning. It's reminding not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, uh, that the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done was not only in keeping with what the God of the Old Testament had prophesied uh, through His prophets, Not only would the God of the Old Testament had testified uh, through the words of Holy Scripture, but the words of the New Testament again are no different than these uh, words that we hear, especially this morning from the prophet Haggai, which Paul quotes in this passage. In this idea of judgment for sin, this idea of a God of thunder, a God of a consuming fire. It is meant, on one hand, to strike fear in the sinner. It's meant to remind the sinner that they stand in the face of an angry God. A God who is angry with sin. A God who hates sin. And a God who has promised judgment for those who continue in sin, and those who live in sin, and those who love sin. That's why Paul again closes his passage by saying, For our God is a consuming fire. And we think of this language of consuming fire, especially as we think of it as, as Paul is laying it out, saying God is a consuming fire, we think, for instance, of Sodom and Gomorrah. As you think back to Genesis 19, and you remember what took place in those cities. You remember the whole scene there with with Lot and with Abraham interceding on Lot's behalf and, and, and the angels who came into the city. Of course, we know how that story ends. We know that it ends with the fire and the brimstone coming down out of heaven and destroying and laying waste to those cities. We think of the walls of Jericho as they come tumbling down upon the enemies of God. We think of the the, the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. As they are cutting themselves, as they are shouting out to Baal, we see the Lord God consume them by fire. Of course, most directly when we think of the consuming fire of the Lord our God, we think of the lake of fire itself. We think of the eternal hellfire facing all those who are outside uh, the kingdom of the Lord our God. And of course, one of the differences between Sodom and Gomorrah and hell is that that consuming fire never ends. That consuming fire is for eternity. It's worthwhile this morning as we hear these words from the Apostle Paul that we uh, take a sober thought of these things. Because again, we we, we serve a God who will bring judgment down upon those outside of Christ. This is a reality that we cannot either ignore or kind of sweep under the rug. One of the things that the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 is that he did not fail to bring to them the whole counsel of God. Again, in reflecting on the whole counsel of God, we cannot leave out the judgment that is promised. Because remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death. We're told that the wages of sin being death is a death that is forever. There are some who have tried to kind of soften that edge and have taught something called annihilationism. Now, it's kind of a big word, but you know we know what annihilate means, right? It means to completely destroy. The idea is that God doesn't send people to hell uh, when they die, they just cease to exist. You know, they just stop existing. They are annihilated. But of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. And what, what do we hear of uh, the man in uh, Luke 16? You know, he is in hell, and he asks for water for his tongue. And that's a clear testimony not only of the reality of the heat of the lake of fire, but also of the eternity of it. Again, this is something that we cannot just kind of pass by. Because again, understanding the, the eternity of hell, understanding the reality of hell, understanding the wages of sin, again, changes how we understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes how we understand the heavenly places themselves. And we're meant in the Scriptures to contrast these two places. You know, the glories of heaven and the wickednesses of hell. You know, part of the reason I believe that the church is in such a weak state today is because we, we do not spend enough time considering the realities of of what it means to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ not because it's uh, it's fashionable or because we are, are kind of blindly reaching out into the future or because it's what we're supposed to do or because it's what our parents tell us we're supposed to do. We see in the Holy Scriptures that we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ Again, what's the rest of, uh, of Romans 6.23? Right. The promise of eternal life. Right. The wages of sin is, is death. Uh, but what is the rest of the story? The rest of the story is, is that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal life. You know, when we, we, we take a moment to kind of meditate on that reality, on the, the, the reality of the difference between eternal life and the heavenly places and eternal death in hell itself, again not only should it again sober our hearts and our minds, but what it should do is what Paul uh, lays it out to do here. Again, notice what he says there in verse 27. now this yet once more. Indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of those things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And hear what Paul says there again. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now now think about what those words mean again, reverence and godly fear. Of course, the book of Proverbs tells us that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. Again, what does it mean to fear God? Again, we need need to understand how we understand what fear is in the Christian life. Again, this is not kind of this irrational fear of the unknown. It's not the fear of the things that go bump in the night. It's not the fear of losing something important to you. This is a fear which understands the difference between God and ourselves. A fear which understands the majesty of God and the weakness of the flesh. Which understands the power and the might of the Lord our God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, and us who are who are creatures who have been made by the Lord our God. Most importantly, have been given this salvation by the hand of this self same God. Again, this is what godly fear means. It means, as Paul lays that out here, has having reverence for God. And reverence is, again, one of these things that is almost totally lost in our culture. This idea of coming before the Lord in humility. Coming before the Lord uh, with Preparation. Coming before the Lord, again, understanding that our God is a consuming fire. You think back to the Old Testament saints, again, how did the godly react when they were in the presence of the Lord God? how How does Moses react at the mount? Again, he has to take off his shoes. And why is that? Because he is on holy ground. How does Isaiah act when he is being called by the Lord our God? Again, he understands himself to be a man of unclean lips. And he understands, again, the difference between himself and a holy and a righteous God. That he is not to come into the presence of God as if he comes into the presence of a store clerk. Or if he comes into the presence of a a movie theater, or comes into the presence of a a stadium. Again, this attitude that we see laid down here by the Apostle Paul is the attitude that we see from the godly saints in the Old Testament. Again, this this understanding that not only when we come into the house of the Lord uh, on the Lord's day in worship are we to come again with this holy reverence and godly fear, but that in coming before this self-same God in reverence and godly fear, we are to do so in the knowledge of the grace by which we may serve God acceptably in this way. Again, this change of mindset, this understanding of what is taking place not only on this day, but in the Christian life. And one of the motivations we are to have to act in obedience to the Lord our God is the fear of God. when we consider and make kind of deals with the devil and our sin, one of the things we're doing is we're saying that we have no fear of the Lord our God. And we're saying that it doesn't matter if I sin before God. Because I have no fear of the judgment that comes with sin. Now this, this, is, this is the reason why Moses and the prophets will talk about the people of God and their sin turning their face away from God. Because think about what that image means. You're turning your face away from something, right? Why, why do you turn your face away? Well, you know, I'm sure all of us have had dogs who, who, who think that if they're hiding their face that you can't see them. I had a, a, a Springer Spaniel when I was a kid who used to go hide behind a pole. And, he, and she would just stick her head behind the pole and think I couldn't see that she was doing whatever she was doing. And again, we, we some often act in that way. Especially in our sin. You know, we, we don't believe that God can see us in the midst of these things. But again, what do we testify? Not only that God is present everywhere, but that God sees all things. One of the ways in which the prophets talk about those who are running from the Lord is they run into the depths of the mountains, right They hide in the clefts of the rock they they hide in the, in the in the bowels of the earth, and why do they do that because again, they think that god can 't see them down there. As if you know, there's an inability of God to penetrate His radar through you know, uh, miles of rock. Again, this idea that Paul is laying forward to the church here in Hebrews chapter 12, again, is reminding them of who they are in the light of who God is. The God is a consuming fire. That He is not a God to be trifled with. Not a God who can be ignored. Not a God who can be slouched off and only called for when you think you need Him. And one of the ways in which the Apostle Paul reminds the people of this truth is by talking about, again, the nature of who they are in light of what God has done for them. You look at verse 28 again. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. I can think about the kingdom that we have received. You know, in, in the Gospels, we hear of the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven. We hear of this testimony that we are citizens of a different kingdom. Right? that we're pilgrims on the way to a better country. You know all of these things are reminding us that the kingdom of man is fleeting. The kingdom of man is being washed away. The kingdom of man is being destroyed. But what is happening to the kingdom of heaven? Well again the kingdom of heaven is like a man who built his house upon a rock. And the waves hit it and the waves hit it and the waves hit it and it stands strong. Whereas what is happening to the kingdom of man? Well, of course, it's like the man who built his house on on sand. And the waves came and destroyed it off the face of the earth. Right? The judgment of God has come and wiped this house away. And these things are meant to remind us as we think back to our own baptism. As we think back to the fact that we have been made members of this kingdom. Not by the works of the flesh, not by the hands of men, but purely by the Spirit of the living God. It's one of the points, of course, that John is making at the beginning of his Gospel. As he's writing his Gospel to those who are questioning not only the divinity of Jesus Christ, but also to those who are wondering why these things have taken place. And He's showing them, again, the nature of this this gracious act, of this reality that has happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because again, when we think of our salvation, we think of the redemption that has been won at the cross, it could not have happened if our God was not a consuming fire. If our God did not come and consume the sacrifice for sin, you think of the, uh, the, the witnesses that we have in uh, the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus of the establishment of the Old Testament tabernacle and of the temple itself. When you think of the, uh, the way in which uh, the offerings were consumed, not only on the altar, but in the midst of this Old Testament worship. Well, what were these things meant to do? They were meant to point forward to sacrifice that was coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what's the difference between the sacrifice of the scapegoat, the sacrifice of uh, the heifers, the sacrifice of the birds, the sacrifice of these animals in the temple? Well, again, the, the blood of goats, the blood of sheep, the blood of birds could not give to us the forgiveness of sin. It was only the pouring of the wrath of God upon the Son of God at the cross which was capable and able to pay for the sins that not only we committed but of course the sin that Adam had committed as our representative in the garden. Again, understanding God as a consuming fire is the hope of that we have before the heavens. In understanding our God as a judge, as a righteous judge, as one who will consume those who remain in sin, is a great peace unto the Christian. In understanding, again, the nature of God's wrath upon sin, And God's wrath upon uh, those who, again, not only remain in that sin, but gladly remain in that sin, again, is to remind us of what was due unto every single one of us. Again, thinking upon hell is a reminder that all of us deserve to be there. That that is our rightful home. Because we are sons of the devil. We are sons of of Belial. But because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in adopting us out of the family of death and into the family of life, it has given to us that hope which is not an earthly kind of hope. What does earthly hope do? Earthly hope is that kind of hope that's described here. Uh, yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Again, this earthly hope—the hope that we have in earthly things—will gain us nothing. Our hope in, in in political things, our hope in worldly things, our hope in princes and chariots will fail from generation to generation. But the hope that we have in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope that we see in Hebrews 12 here, again, is the hope that we have because it's grounded in who God is. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is meant to give us comfort, to give us peace. Not only this morning, but especially as we awake every day, especially as we rise out of our beds, again having the knowledge that our God is a consuming fire, that our God is the one who has not only called fire down upon sinners, that our God is the one who has given up His only begotten Son, that whosoever believe on Him shall not perish shall receive eternal life. Again, there's there's great danger to softening the edges of these truths. Because the Gospel loses its purpose. It loses its beauty. Why would we need a Christ who died as an example for us? Many good stories from, old, from olden times of men who have laid down their life for their friends. There's many good examples that we can look back to in antiquity and see a life well lived and a life that we would be wise to follow. Of course, that's not the primary reason that Jesus came. Again, think of the very name Jesus itself. And the idea there, again, God saves. Again, God has saved us from hell. He saved us from judgment. He saved us from this reality that we read in the Scriptures. is meant to bring us into, into a, a much clearer understanding of our place in this kingdom that cannot be shaped. Because not only do we enter into this kingdom by the hand of God, but we stay in this kingdom by the hand of God. And there are some today who teach that you get in by grace and stay in by works. You're kind of given a key to the kingdom and as long as you take care of that key, you are are safe. But the second you lose that key or the second someone steals it from you, you are cast out as those who don't have the right kind of garments. You think of that, that parable of the wedding feast. Again, you think about who we are in Christ. You know, whose garments do we wear? Whose garments do we have covering ourselves? Again, it's the garments, it's the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Which is our peace and our comfort in the knowledge of the truth. So again, as we we think about God as a consuming fire, as we close our time this morning, again, we have the challenge in these words. Again, to not only be reverent before the Lord our God in worship, of course, one of the ways we do that is by only doing in worship what God has called us to do. Because again, it's important to remember who worship is for. And worship is for the Lord God. Again, we are coming into His presence to bring praise to His name. To testify to the world that our hope is in the God of heaven, not in the gods of the earth. And so just as the Old Testament church uh, was given a manual uh, through which to order their worship, uh, the New Testament church is no different. And so we have to go to the Word of God. Again, to see what God has called us to do. Again, we're not free to kind of act willy-nilly in worship. And we can only... Again, it's harmful, I think, to only think of this in a negative way. And it's important for us to positively understand the blessing that we have to worship God as He has called us to worship. Likewise, this reverence, this awe, this, this uh, obedience unto the Lord our God Again, it's a great comfort to us as we order our lives. Again, life is hard enough. It's it's even harder if you act in defiance of the law of God. Again, God has given to us His law as His wisdom. When we look at the Ten Commandments, they are a reflection of who God is. They are a reflection of His character. Why are we to remember the Sabbath day? Because God rested on the seventh day. Why are we to hallow the name of the Lord our God? Because the name of the Lord our God teaches us everything that we are to know about who our God is. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we leave this place this morning, As we go out into a world that that treats the name of God like, like trash, that treats the wisdom of God like foolishness. Let's remember what Paul has laid forward to us, what the Holy Spirit has given to us this day. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence And godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you.